Would you join me in Matthew, the ninth chapter? We were in Luke's gospel last week. We have sort of switched for obvious reasons. After all, this is the calling of Matthew. Who better to know the story than Matthew himself? To the gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And would you read with me? Follow along, please, as I read verses 9 through verse 13. Matthew, chapter 9, reading from verse 9 through verse 13. And as Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the seat, receipt of customs. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have been following the life of Christ chronologically. We started at his birth and followed it through to his baptism, to the early days of his ministry. And then to his announcement that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and in the Sermon of the Mount... He gives us the people that will populate that kingdom as well as the principles on which that kingdom is to be founded. And then in the last few chapters, we have been studying his miracles, these great confirming signs that he is not just one who claims authority, but one who has power, divine power, at his disposal to back up his authority. And then last week, as we studied the healing of that paralytic man that was lowered through the roof in that house in Capernaum, we saw that the focus of Christ's ministry has now sharpened a little bit. That we learn from that incident as he looks at that paralytic man laying there on the floor in front of him, and instead of saying what everybody assumed he was going to say, man, thy sins are forgiven, I mean, I'm getting backwards, what everybody but me assumed he would say, Man, take up thy bed and walk. Instead, he says, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And then, of course, to give them a sign that he can, in fact, has power on earth to forgive sin, he says to the man, take up thy bed and walk. Now, do you understand the subtle shift that's taking place there? That we are to understand then that the main reason that Christ came is not to heal men of their diseases. These folks, he healed folks are going to get sick again. Everybody he fed with the loaves, that wonderful miracle, got hungry again. Even Lazarus that he raised from the dead died again. You do understand that if that's all this is about, we've got a lot of fuss over nothing. It's not going to really solve anything for the long run. But what we see in that miracle, that by the way, in Luke's account, takes place right before the calling of Matthew, the text that we've read here in Matthew. What we see is, is that Christ's real mission is to not take care of the temporal concerns, but he addresses himself now to that which none of us can afford, and that is to die in our sins, to face an eternity outside of the favor of God Almighty. And he shows us that he has power on earth to do the one thing that only God can do, forgive a man, of his sins. 
Sometimes I marvel at the disciples, and I, and I really think in some ways I'm sort of glad I'm not in their shoes. I wonder sometimes, did the disciples ever get over being shocked at the things that Jesus said and the things that He did? I mean, just go down the list. Everything He does, the only thing you can count on is that He will do what you didn't count on. That's, that's about the only thing that you can expect is the unexpected. I mean, do you really think if you'd have been one of his disciples that day, that leper consumed with leprosy came running up there to him, fell at his feet, did, were you expecting Jesus to reach out and touch him? Well, nobody expected that. Or on this day that we just talked about when this man, this paralytic, was lowered down through the roof of the house and laying there on the floor, did anybody expect him to say, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. In other words, the one thing that the disciples never quite got over was being shocked, being utterly amazed at what came out of Jesus' mouth. And then, of course, his acts, his miracles, confirms his words for that paralytic man that he touches is instantly cleansed. This paralytic man who he has pronounced his sins forgiven is now raised to walk and carry his bed. In other words, not only was his words amazing, but his actions amazing. But I think sometimes of all the things that Jesus did and said, that what we have in our text here before us was probably, if I'd have been in the shoes of a Peter or a James or a John, if I'd have been one of the early disciples following Jesus, nothing would have prepared me for what takes place in our text. Now, I realize the full impact of what the words that we just read probably hadn't sunk in, probably hadn't hit you. And I'm going to try, of course, my job as a preacher of the gospel to try to exposit try to exegete what is in the text, is to make you sense and feel the weight of what is happening here in this text. It, of course, revolves and involves this man by the name of Matthew, the author of the gospel account that we're reading. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this man is called Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So if you see it over, say, in Luke's gospel, uh, talking about a man by the name of Levi, and what you read there sounds awful familiar to what you read here, it's because it's one and the same man. He is a publican. Now, that's publican, not republican. He is a publican. He is a tax collector. And he is sitting in the tax office, in the booth, where taxes are being collected. Now, we need to understand something about that. I realize we have Kim and Chuck working down at IRS. And, uh, you know, we tolerate them in spite of that fact, right? Uh, you know, they're pretty good folks. And But, you know, even though we might look askance at them every now and then, but, uh, uh, you know, to work collecting taxes in our day and time, though even now it has somewhat of a stigma attached to it to some degree, it comes nowhere near what we are talking about here in our text. For you have to understand that we are not living here in Israel in an independent country, that they are under the occupation of a foreign entity. The Romans have come in, have invaded, have seized power. And one of the reasons that nations did that, the reason they expanded their territory and their borders, was to then levy tribute upon these conquered lands. In other words, if I can conquer Mexico, 
As an example, uh, we can say, okay, Mexico, we'll let you live in peace. We'll uh, provide armed forces to protect you. We will provide our American laws to govern your nation. We will keep the peace down there. But in order, you know, for to pay for our expenses, we will levy so much tax upon the nation of Mexico. And you really have no choice when the Romans, in this case, have their troops in your land. There's not much you're going to do about it. I mean, your only choice is either to pay up or go to war. And warring against the Romans was not a very successful uh, enterprise in these days when they were the most powerful nation on earth. So you understand you're a foreign, you've, you've been occupied by foreign troops and they have levied tribute upon them. In other words, what I'm saying is the taxes that they're collecting, it's not like Chuck working down at RS. You know, he's collecting, working, well, he's not doing the collection, but, you know, he's helping uh, collect taxes that will go to our government. In the case of this, these men are collecting taxes that are going to the Roman government, to a Gentile power, to a foreign entity. Now, what the Romans did, typically, was rather than having to raise and collect the taxes themselves, they basically farmed out this enterprise to the highest bidder. In other words, they would say in Rome, generally this is where all this took place, they would say, we're going to levy uh, on the nation of Judah, we're going to levy so much taxes. Now, now, who wants to go down there and collect those taxes for us? And by the way, not only will you be able to collect our taxes and pay us what they owe us, but whatever extra you get, you can keep for yourself. And so there were these various companies, private companies, that bid for the privilege of collecting taxes in these Roman provinces. You get the picture? So this private company has come into your country, and they are, in fact, collecting taxes for the Romans. And to do that, oftentimes, they would employ the locals. They'll hire up some of the natives of the country from which they are collecting taxes. I mean, who better to know, you know, what somebody's making than their next-door neighbor? Who better to know how much they can afford to pay in taxes than somebody who's lived right there with them all their lives? You, you begin to see how this thing's working? So you've got this private company that has won the bid, let's say, to collect taxes from Judea. And to do that, they are hiring up some of the locals, whoever go to work for them, to collect taxes from their neighbors, give them to this private company, who then gives Rome their cut and keeps the rest for themselves. So everybody's getting a sort of a piece of the pie. And, of course, it is the occupied nation that is losing out. Okay, you with me so far? You understand how this is working? Now, do you also understand how publicans then are going to be viewed by the people of Israel? They were the lowest sort of people. I mean, this was dirty business, folks. You have sold yourself out to the service of an occupying Gentile military force. This would be like the Russians coming and defeating us in battle and then sending their people in to collect taxes from us and, and me volunteering to go to work for the Russians. You, you get the sense of things here. This isn't friendly stuff. 
And the only folks that are going to do that is basically people not have much hope of making a living any other way. The lowest classes, and they were known for the fact of their dishonesty, that they were cheats, that they were liars, they were swindlers, they were extortioners. Publicans, for instance, every time you took anything in or out of the country, every time, every time one of those fishing boats came in from the Sea of Galilee, why do you suppose they had a tax receipt booth here in Capernaum, right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee? Every time one of those fishing boats came in from the sea, they had to pay so much tax on the fish they caught out there. It get under your skin after a while. And not only do they have to pay the legal tax, what Rome says they owe, but these guys have the power of the Roman government behind them to enforce their edicts to get anything and everything they can get out of. They, they can even intercept your mail, your private correspondence. They can intercept it and read it if they think you're trying to hide something from their taxations. They are in every sense traitors, turncoats, who have sold themselves out to go to work for the enemy against their own kin, their own brothers. We in the South have a word for those kind of people. You know, back after the war between the states, there were those that were called carpetbaggers. Now, a carpetbagger was somebody from the north that came down, presumably carrying their bag made out of carpet, to uh, basically see if they could get in on uh, some of the riches that were going to come about through the defeat of the south. But worse than the carpetbaggers was another class called the scalawags. For a scalawag was a fellow southerner who went to work basically for the Republican Party. Got a lot of scalawags these days down here, I see. But uh, they basically went to work for the Republican Party in the South among their own people and tried as best they could to profit from the situation. In fact, the most famous scalawag after the war between the states, was none other than James Longstreet, the uh, general of the Arkansas Division at the Battle of Gettysburg under Lee. Tell me it ain't so, Joe, but it is. That's, that's the truth. So in other words, you understand that the hatred and the obrodium that, that you would sense towards these people, people who have sold you out, people who are nothing but crooks, nothing but interested in covetously lining their own pockets at your expense. And they lie and they cheat and they swindle and they extort every penny they can get out of you. In fact, so hated were they, the Jewish rabbis said there were only three cases, three conditions where it's okay to lie. You can lie in order to spare your life. You can lie in order to spare your property. And you can lie to a publican. In other words, these people were considered so evil by the Jews that you can lie to them and it won't be a sin. That's how hated they were by the people. Now, I suspect some of you sitting here this morning are going to think, at least harbor the idea that, well, well, maybe they really weren't that bad. I mean, you know, nobody likes anybody who collects taxes. We all understand that. That's not exactly the way to get on anybody's good side. So, so maybe this was just an undeserved reputation. Maybe they just got a bad rap. Maybe underneath all of this stuff, there actually was a spark of goodness. 
There was something worth salvaging there in the character of a publican. They really weren't all that bad. No, they were. In fact, Jesus himself teaches us that they were absolutely as bad as everybody thought. In other words, I don't want you for a moment to think that what's going on here this morning is Jesus walked by and saw Matthew standing there and and nobody really understood Matthew. You know, he's really misunderstood, misguided perhaps, and had a bum rap, bad reputation, and it really wasn't that bad. And Jesus wanted to show everybody there was some goodness in Matthew. That is not what's going on. From the very words of Jesus, we learn that the publicans were every bit as evil and vile as everybody thought they were. Look, for instance, in Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew 5, verse 46, Matthew 5, verse 46, here in this teaching of loving our enemies, Jesus says, For if you love them who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans so. Do not even the publicans the same. I mean, so what? Big whoopee if you just love those who love you back. Even publicans. You, you understand the language of Jesus here is designed that we understand that the very worst of men will love those who love. They love their mommies. They love their friends, those that give them stuff. Even publicans. Even publicans. Look a little later in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 18. I've often thought Matthew, as he penned these words... Think, here is the old publican himself writing these words of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 18, starting it out down about verse 15, talks about resolving conflicts among his people. And if uh, somebody has sinned against you, go to him and tell him his fault. And if he hears you, you've gained him and so forth. But if he won't hear you, then take two or three witnesses. And if he neglects to hear them in verse 17, tell it to the church. Look at verse 17, Matthew 18, 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them... Tell it unto the church, but if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. You understand that even in the language of Jesus, when you say, let him be as a publican to you, the publicans were excommunicated from the synagogues, excommunicated from any hope, of redemption under the law, they were virtually outcasts. And Jesus confirms that opinion. It was not an undeserved opinion. That's what they were. This is not, in other words, a case of Jesus somehow looking for some hidden good in the character of Matthew. Now, we have no proof of what I'm going to say, no proof from Scripture, but I do think that it's reasonable to assume from the account as we've read it that this was probably not the first encounter that Matthew had had with Jesus. Jesus, more than likely, was not an unknown quality to Matthew this day. Matthew, as a publican collecting taxes in the little village of Capernaum, his business would have been to know everybody else's business. You do understand that the publicans, by the very nature of their work, are going to have an eye out for what everybody's doing. 
Whoever seems to be making a little money, they then become fair prey and game to extort a little more tax out of. So the publican's job was to keep his eyes open for what's going on, and especially in a little place like Capernaum, this little fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Certainly, Matthew had heard of Jesus. The place is way too small for that not to have happened. He probably had heard Jesus teach and certainly had heard of the miracles that Jesus had performed. At the very least, I think we can say those things. Keep in mind that this is, after all, Capernaum, which is the hub, ground zero of the ministry, the public ministry of our Lord. Furthermore, this man Matthew would most likely be one of the men that man like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, after all, what are they? They're fishermen. Their, their job is, and they live, by the way, in Capernaum. Peter's house is in Capernaum. These men would leave their homes in the morning. They'd get in their fishing boats. They'd go out, or perhaps all night, catch some fish, and come back. And the first fellow to greet them is a guy like Matthew. It's either Matthew or one of his companions to get their share of the catch. Do you understand that this is a fellow that you've rubbed shoulders with, you've had dealings with, and you hate his guts? You can't stand him. But whatever opinion he might have had of Jesus, whatever thoughts he might have had concerning him, I think one thing is quite clear. He never would have dreamed in a million years that Jesus would one day walk by his workplace and point to him and say, follow me. Not in his wildest imagination. The very same call that Jesus had extended a little earlier to Peter, Andrew, James, John, is now extended to Matthew. Same words, with the same effect. He got up, he walked off, and he left it all behind. And he never looks back. Now, you'll notice in verse 10 of our text that there is this great feast that is being held in the house. And, by the way, Matthew, I think he sort of intends for us to understand this. Luke and Mark make it even more clear that this is his house. This is Matthew's house. That he has invited Jesus to come to a feast at his house. And, as a result, he invites all his friends his associates, his companions. And if you're a publican, the only friends and associates and companions you're going to have is the riffraff. The other publicans, or as Tim mentioned, the, the lowest form of people, the, the sinners, and say that with the sneer. You know, like we Southerners say, Yankee. Like we say, humid. You know, those types of words. We've got a certain sneering way we say them. And that's the way, no doubt, they intended this word, sinner. Oh yes, they knew everybody was a sinner. But these were a class designated by that name. A class of people called sinners. Outcasts. 
people who had sinned away any hope whatsoever of being a card-carrying Israelite, who had sinned away any hope of being redeemed under the law, of having somehow something that could put them back right with God. These people, the people congregated at Matthew's house that day, in our vernacular, had blown it. They had sold their soul for wampum. You know what wampum is? Trinkets. Beads. That's how we bought Manhattan, by the way. That $21 worth of wampum. Worthless junk. But they had sold their soul for money, power, and in the process, they had sacrificed everything that made a Jew a Jew. They had tossed away everything that mattered, reputation, integrity. That's who comes to this feast. Nobody else going to darken the door. That's who shows up at this dinner. And, of course, the omnipresent Pharisees, the eye, are there to behold the situation. I dare say they probably were not indoors. They're probably saying these things. You'll notice they're addressing Christ's disciples, and they are asking this question. Now, you understand sometimes people ask questions for their own information, and then there are other times people ask questions to insinuate something, and certainly it is of that latter sort that this question falls into. They say, why does your master eat with publicans? And sinners. I realize to eat a meal in our day and our culture does not carry with it the same connotation it did then. We oftentimes take people out to eat and our business associates or salesmen and so forth. You take people out to eat all the time. It's no big deal. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. But but in Israel it was different. To sit and eat with someone basically symbolized that you were in fellowship with them. That you had your favor placed upon them. And so the question is, why in the world, if your master, if he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, why in the world would he be in a place like that with people like that? What is he doing where he is if he is who he claims he is? I mean, if he's a holy man, don't you know that holy men get to be holy men by staying away from people like that? And you want to see other examples of that thinking? Just think of that dinner in that Pharisee's house where the woman, apparently a prostitute, comes in from the street, begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And the, what's running through the man's mind, if he were a prophet, if he were somebody sent from God, he'd know what kind of woman this is and he wouldn't let her near him. That's how a Pharisee thinks. So this is formed in the form of a question, but you understand it's more than a question. Everything the Pharisees think they know. Heavy emphasis here on think they know. Is being violated by what Jesus is doing. And yet Jesus counters their question. Steps into this 
little conflict that the Pharisees are having with his disciples, as he so often did. And he counters with some wondrous words. My, my. Isn't it so often that the enemies of Christ think they've got him? They think they've got him trapped. They think, we've got you this time. There's no way you can wiggle out of this. And then out of his mouth comes forth such wisdom. And when I mean wisdom, not just that which is deep and difficult, but that which is just so intuitively right. Just so naturally obvious. I mean, obvious once he points it out, you understand. Nobody would have thought of this ahead of time. But he responds with a statement like this that just absolutely devastates his opponents. Leaves them speechless. Leaves them without a thing to say because he's so right. So obviously right. And so here to the Pharisees who are standing there condemning him for a for a social is to be someone who addresses the needs of men and ministers to those needs. And if sin, as we have seen in our little study, if sin is that greatest need, isn't it somewhat analogous to a physician? You say, well, I want to be a doctor, but I don't like to be around sick people. Folks, save us some trouble here. Find something else to do. The doctor, by definition, must associate with sick people. You ever been to the doctor's office? I mean, you go down to the doctor's office this afternoon, you know what you'll find there? A room full of sick folks. Go to the hospital. Man, my, my motto is stay out of hospitals. I mean, odds are, if you're there, you're sick. I mean, it's about the most unhealthy place I can think of, being a hospital. It's only one place worse, that's a graveyard. If you're there, odds are you're dead. But anyway, you, that's a little twisted logic here. But you, but you understand that you say, well, what's he doing associating? You know, if a doctor came along and says, well, I don't want to get near the diseased. I don't want to brush shoulders with those that are sick. You say, fellow, you're in the wrong profession. The very nature of what you are to do demands that you associate with the sick. Does it mean... That the doctor loves disease? Does, is this doctor in love with cancer? Heart disease? Is, is that why he associates with those who have these effects? No. But in order to treat, in order to address the problem, he must hobnob. He must associate with those who are in fact sick. Now, we take these words, the fact that Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you may for a moment mull over that statement and say, well, is Jesus in this case, is he insinuating that there are in fact some righteous people who don't need repentance? I mean, you might could take that that way, right? He says, I haven't come to call the righteous to repentance. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Is he insinuating that the Pharisees in this case are not sinners and therefore need no repentance? Well, may I just point out to you that so often in dealing with men, Christ would use, and God, by the way, still uses with us today, our own diagnosis 
of our condition. He lets us, if you will, sort ourselves into the category. For instance, Paul, preaching at Antioch of Pisidia, says to the Jews who rejected the gospel there, seeing that you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we turn to the Gentiles. In other words, God has not sorted you into this category that's unworthy of eternal life. You did. You placed yourself there. You see the principle. That God uses your estimation of your condition and He deals with you on that basis. So if you think you're pretty hot stuff, capable, healthy, He will say simply to you, I don't guess you need a doctor then, do you? And pass you by and leave you in your ignorance and arrogance and your sin. He came to save sinners. That's his job. To call sinners to repentance. Now, sort yourself. All you sinners over here, all you righteous folks over here. And amazingly, and certainly amazing to the Pharisees who thought that surely when Messiah comes, that he's going to come and put his stamp of approval on our party. He's going to pat us on the back and says, you've been good fellows. You, you have been the conservatives. You have upheld the inspiration of Scripture, the veracity of God's Word, the truthfulness of miracles. You, you are a good bunch. I'm going to make you my, my right-hand men in the kingdom. That's exactly what they thought was going to happen. And here the Messiah is coming along and basically saying to them, if you're not sick, then I don't have anything for you. What's your condition? My friend Harold Rudolph down in Houston, I quote him some, and he says that it is not our sin that keeps us out of heaven. Think about it. He said it's not your sin that keeps you out of heaven. It's your righteousness. Now he says your sin will put you in hell. But your sin won't keep you out of heaven. There's a provision made for sin. There's a Savior for sinners. So your sin may put you in hell, but it won't keep you out of heaven. What keeps you out of heaven is your righteousness. The fact that I don't need it. The fact that I'm not that bad. I'm not that sorry. I'm not that sinful. You say, well, how big a sinner must I be? How sick must I be? Sick enough to seek the doctor. That's the bottom line. How big a sinner do you have? My friend, you're plenty big enough in the eyes of God. Trust me. It may not be very large in your eyes. It's plenty big in His eyes. My friend, you sick enough to die and go to hell. Then you're sick enough. You're a sinner enough. How sick, how sinful. The old hymn writer, we're going to sing this in closing in a few minutes. All the fitness, Joseph Hart wrote about two or three hundred years ago. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Do you need him? Do you need the doctor? Do you need a savior? That's all you need. 
And so may I this morning spare you from these terrible, terrible mistakes that are made by men. I'll run through them right quick. Three things. That's not three points. These are just one, two, three. Don't want to scare you. Don't want to, you know, I know you can smell the food and I can too. I know. So I just want your attention for a few more minutes. First of all, the great mistake is to think like the Pharisees that Christ is going to come and approve of us because we're better than others. We're cut above everybody else. We haven't done those bad things that those other folks done. Back to my illustration. I've, I've about worn this thing out. Nobody has yet said that's a good illustration. So, but but folks on the Titanic, you can, you can brag because you're riding in first class and you're not down there in no second class or you're not down there in stewage, you know, with the the low riffraff. My friend, what does it matter? It's going to the bottom. What does it matter that you're a little better than your next door neighbor? My friend, you still have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The standard, the minimum standard that God demands, you haven't even come close to it. What difference does it make that you've not done the evil, wicked things that your neighbor has done? That's the first mistake. The second mistake is to mistake the very character of God of what salvation's all about, what God's doing. You know, we tend to think that as the Pharisees, they thought they knew God. They knew Him like nobody else knew Him. They knew what He was all about. They knew how God ticked. They knew how to worship Him and how to serve Him. And my friend, they knew nothing of God. These people as a class were about as far from being godly as people can be. That's the bottom line. These people who prided themselves in the knowledge of God in fact, knew nothing of the character of God. They would look at what God was doing through His Son and turn up their nose at it and sneer at it. Do you understand what's going on here? They're looking at the mission that God has sent His Son into this world to perform and say, that can't possibly be of God. And the very law, the very law that they prided themselves on keeping condemned them. Just the song that Samuel taught us. What does God require of thee but to do justly? To love mercy. You see, that's what Jesus is telling these guys. You need to do a little Bible study, boys. Go and learn what this means when God says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I don't want your religious formalisms if it's not accompanied with a heart of mercy and grace towards your fellow man. You can keep your gifts. Keep your sacrifices. Your prayers are an abomination if they are not accompanied by a heart of charity, love, grace, and mercy to your neighbor. The very law that they thought would commend them in fact stood condemning them. And then thirdly, there is a mistake to make on the other side. Many would mistakenly think that Christ caused them to salvation, but they can sit where they are in the receipt of customs. They don't have to resign as a publican. That Jesus actually came into the world to save sinners so that they can be sinners. And continue in their sin with impunity, with now the promise of heaven. My friend, learn from Matthew. The call was not, sit where you are, Matthew. 
believe on me and go to heaven. The call is, get up, come, follow me. Turn your back. Everything you've been doing, all of that profit that you have illegally gained, all the covetousness that you've devoted your life and served the God of mammon as your God, Matthew, come. Leave it. Walk away. Follow me. Make no mistake, that's the call. He calls us to leave sin behind. He comes to people who don't have a ghost of a chance. He comes to folks that have sinned away every opportunity, every possibility that the law might ever hold out to them. And he comes and says, I can do for you what the law cannot. Follow me. Follow me. Do you see the doctrine of election here? I don't know how anybody can argue with election in this context. Whose choice was this? Did Matthew come to Jesus and say, Boy, I would sure like to be your disciple. No, Jesus walked by. I, I liken it, you know, I don't know if kids do this. Jason, you can probably tell me. The kids after, at school at recess, do you choose up sides to play ball? Do you do that? We used to do that. I mean, we get two guys and they're going to be the captains and they'd choose their team. And, you know, usually you're going to pick the best players to be on your team, people that can hit the ball and catch and so forth. And, and that's sort of how we figure this thing's got to be working. Jesus looking around, scouring the countryside for the best talent he can find, you know, those long ball hitters. And then he walks by this place. You know the kid that doesn't even have a glove? Throws like a sissy. Couldn't hit the ball if it's the size of a basketball. You know the one. Because generally I was that one. You know, I'm the one that got chosen last. Nobody, you know, okay, I'll take him if I have to. You know. My friend, that's Matthew. And Jesus walked by and said, I'll take him. I choose him. Not because he can hit, not because he's got a glove. But I'm going to show you what I can make of a clumsy goofball like him. I'm going to show you what my grace can do. No, Peter, walking along with him, said, no, Lord, no, no, you don't get it. You don't understand. You haven't had to deal with this fella day in and day out. Peter, same thing I'm going to do with you. It's the same thing I'm going to do with him. Now, where are you today? What's your diagnosis? I'll just, I'm not going to try to sort you into these classes. You sort yourself. That's your job. Not even Jesus sorted men into these classes. He just said this way it is. The physician comes to those that are sick, deathly sick, horribly sick, eternally sick. 
to the whole. Not to the healthy, not those just need a little aspirin. No. You're going to have to sort yourself. You have to come to the great physician, and my friend, he may do a little cutting on you. Boy, isn't it something the way these guys go after cancer? And they cut on you. They bombard you with radiation. They, they shoot poison in you and just about take you to an inch of your life. You say, boy, they sure hate people. No. They hate cancer. And they'll just about kill you to try to get you rid of it. My friend God, when He gets a hold of you, may just about kill you. But He's deathly serious about this business of saving people, His people, from the misery of their sin. I extend to you the call of Christ Himself. Come, follow me. Let's pray. Father, may we be as shocked and amazed this morning as no doubt the disciples were on the day that all this happened. May our eyes be opened as no doubt theirs were that day as to the true reason that Jesus came into this world. Not to commend our righteousness, but to save sinners. Lord, may that thought humble us, may it amaze us. May we stand in awe of one who would come from the very environment, the pristine, spotless, holy environment of heaven into this septic tank, this sewer we call earth. walk in its filth in its filthy people with their filthy mouths and filthy actions but he comes to clean us to wash us to recover us to reclaim us Lord may we never get over it may you call even today those who are in sin, those who are hopelessly sinful, those who have blown it, those who have sinned away any hope of gaining your favor, not just to those who are a wee bit ill, but those who are terminally ill. Lord, may the good news of the gospel fall upon their ears that there is a Savior who can reclaim even them. And may they come. May they leave it all behind and come to Him. Thank you for what we read here. Thank you that you loved us even in our sin and did what was necessary to call us unto yourself. In the name of Jesus, we ask these favors. Amen.